Welcome to 12, The Week in Health Law, the health entitlement podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on August 1st, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host, who is still tragically undecided whether or not to authorize the upcoming cost-sharing subsidies, and who is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. So are you going to authorize or not? i got to roll the dice. Very Trump. <laughs> very, very Trumpian. So a quick reminder that if you like the show, actually, if you like the show a lot, you can become a patron. Just go to twill.com and click on the patron page link and show the other health heads just how cool you are. This week on Twill, we greet Professor Erica Leedson from the School of Law at the University of Missouri. There she researches rights and teaches in the areas of drug and device regulation, intellectual property, and administrative law. Before entering the academy, Professor Leedson uh, was in a private practice for 18 years, eight of them as a partner at Cummington and Burling. In fact, we first met while she was still at the firm. Uh, she's an elected member of the American Law Institute and part of the leadership of the Food and Drug Law Institute that I, I understand we pronounce as fiddly, which is always made me laugh for some reason. <laughs> Great to have you on the pod, Erica. Very nice to be here. So we've got uh, several of your fascinating uh, recent articles to uh, discuss. And the first one is called the the drug innovation paradox, um, and it's a great mix of history, innovation policy, and uh, somewhat extraordinary for a law review article, original data driven research that informs the piece. So the the nut of it, uh, as far as I can see, is your observation that uh, exclusivity uh, that dwindles with each additional month of pre-commercialization research would ordinarily lead innovators to be more efficient, but the added factor of the drug regulatory system leads to a different result. I would so like you to unpack that and give us a gentle slope into the piece. The the short version is that drug companies have to do a certain amount of research in order to get their products approved. And the amount varies. And it varies depending on factors like the type of molecule or the disease that's being studied, the the outcome that the the company is, is hoping to prove, what other products are on the market. Market, the molecules mechanism of action, a, a sort of a whole list of things affect how long the trials have to be and can affect how long the overall pre-market research and development program is. These companies uh, typically secure patent rights very early in the process. Uh, the active ingredient patent is usually secured before they even start any clinical trials. And what that means is as a practical matter, the longer the clinical trial period goes from the IND start date until the, the application is approved, the longer that period takes, the less patent life they're going to have at, at the end. Then the data exclusivity period is flat, but no matter how long it takes, whether it's seven years or 15 years, they get five years of data exclusivity and they'll get a shorter and shorter period of patent life left uh, as their pre-market research gets longer and longer. And the, the thrust of my concern is that ordinarily you would think, and I think it's probably true for innovators in other fields, if you're faced 
faced with the fact that your patent life is going to dwindle dwindle if you take a really long time to bring your product to market, then you're going to be efficient. You're going to make choices that, that are efficient so that you can get onto market quickly and enjoy all of that patent life. The problem is the way our drug regulatory system works, a firm doesn't have those kinds of choices. The kinds of choices it has are, am I going to try to study phase uh, stage one breast cancer, or am I going to study or Alzheimer's disease, or am I going to study uh, something that uh, can be established as effective with really short clinical trials? Those are the kinds of choices they have. So a company that is trying to make sure that it has an adequate return on its research investments may steer away from the kinds of programs that take a really long time that are typically the kinds of programs that result in products for Alzheimer's or products for central nervous system diseases or products for stage one cancer. So my concern is this, I, I call it a paradox, where the longer you research, the less exclusivity you get. My concern is that that paradox is going to cause companies to pick or, or to not pick drugs that we really want them to pick. I understand the end of the runway, all right, which is when generics can kick in with a different type of drug application. Can you back me up along the timeline a little bit to how the timing begins here? Because this is a patent timeline that starts running, correct? It is a patent timeline as well as a drug development timeline. So the way it will happen, uh, for instance, is at the very beginning of your timeline, if you will, somebody discovers a new compound and its potential use for a disease. And and they'll apply for a patent and you can get a, a utility patent. Now you can get a patent on the basis of, of animal data showing um, the the kind of utility that's necessary under patent law. You don't have to have done all your clinical trials. At that point, um, under current law, once you apply for that patent, the patent term starts ticking. The next thing that happens in the timeline is the company starts, it, it'll finish up whatever kind of, of preclinical studies are necessary to submit to FDA, which may be a more robust set than is necessary for patenting purposes. And then they submit their application, their investigational new drug application to FDA to start clinical trials, and then they will proceed through um, several phases, phase one trials, phase two trials, and then the big pivotal phase three trials where they show that the product or they attempt to show that the product is safe and effective for a particular use with a particular dosage and so on and so forth. Then they apply for approval, then FDA reviews the application, and then it gets approved. And all of that time, the patent life has been has been ticking by or you know it's been it's been lapsing or elapsing during that entire time period but they aren't allowed to market their product can i ask the the dumb guy question why can't the drug company delay the patent application what what's causing the triggering of the the patent period so early when there's so much work to be done well the short answer is that there are a variety of doctrines in patent law that basically push you to file your patent as early as possible. And um, there, there has historically been concern that uh, a clinical trial, if not sort of arranged appropriately with confidentiality agreements in place and so forth, would cause you to uh, not be able to patent your product um, or publication of the results. Uh, either of those would, uh, under, under prior 
patent law would have, would be a problem. And even with patent reform uh, a couple years ago, I guess it's more than a couple now, uh, th- those continue to be true. And we also now have have switched our, our patents so that our patent system so that the first to file receives the patent. So all of these all of these together have for for decades led to sort of conventional wisdom and 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 sort of prudence dictating that a company should patent before it starts the clinical trials. I just wanted to get into some of the economic incentives here and some of the theory. I mean, I think that overall the drug innovation paradox is a really good counterbalance to say the a lot of the extant literature that says there are too many intellectual property rights or too strong rights um, and too broad a scope of rights. And one thing though that I've heard from folks who are part of that literature is they point to the very high profit margins of pharmaceutical firms and say, look, if the average profitability of US corporations, Fortune 500, say is 7% and the pharma firms are making 20%, should we really be worried that the government is not adequately uh, helping them? So that's one, one consideration. The other thing that I was just wondering about was looking at page 63 of the article that's forthcoming in the Missouri Law Review. Uh, you talked about the the some drugs take a longer time um, for clinical, I guess, uh, uh, in terms of the studies, and some of them take shorter time. And so would one of the uh, worries that you would have about the patent system in general might be that it is not only potentially ill-suited to the pharmaceutical industry, but also that it is ill-suited to, say, um, the type of even-handedness that would promote innovation across drug categories equally, as opposed to promoting, say, ophthalmic agents, sleep disorder drugs, antibacterials, which seem to take less time to test for the efficacy or, or safety of than, say, some of these other other uh, uh, drugs. Yeah, I think actually that that last point you made is is really interesting because uh, from the perspective of a profit maximizing firm, the sweet spot is really something that a doesn't take very long and b is a blockbuster. And and in that case. You get to market quickly. You don't chew up any of your patent life or very much of it. And then during that patent term, you make a tremendous profit. That's sort of the sweet spot. And and the the, the concern that I have with the fact that there is so much variability is 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 that companies will look for that sweet spot and for the products that that are almost certainly going to take an, an astonishingly long period of time. Um, they may shy away, and and it's hard to. It's hard to find data on that. We don't know what we don't know, but but we have sort of little little inklings of problems. Um, we know that a bunch of companies pulled out of of the CNS uh, research space a, a few years ago, and and that's certainly concerning. And there was some research on on cancer. Um, uh, programs uh, that Heidi Williams did a few years ago that suggested that, that firms were not investing. Oh, and if I could just uh, clarify on CNS, uh, CNS is Central Nervous System Agents, and I think that your finding was the average clinical testing period for them was over nine years, whereas for sleep disorder drugs, it was 4.5 years. So if we compare those, it almost takes twice as long to bring the CNS category. Is that is that right? Yes, that's that's exactly right. And um, there, was, uh, th- there were a, a number of pretty high 
high-profile uh, withdrawals from the CNS space uh, in the early early teens. A, a number of, of the larger companies basically indicated that they were going to shut down their neuroscience research. So in terms of thinking about where to go from here, and, and I know there's, there's lots of different factors at work here, right? Because one of the things you mentioned is like antibacterials are one of the shorter ones. It's like it takes 4.5 years, but I imagine those familiar with Kevin Outerson's work are know what a crisis we're in, I guess, in terms of antibacterials. And so there are probably the countervailing issues that you suggested when you talked about the blockbuster, that the blockbuster would probably be something you take, say, once a day or once a week for life versus, say, an antibiotic that would you take it once and that would be it. So maybe that is explaining why there's not enough antibacterials. But I guess the larger question that comes out of this is thinking about what uh, Michael Carroll has called intellectual properties uh, uniformity costs, should there be some sort of uh, tolling of the patent period on the basis of these extended lengths of time that it takes to actually demonstrate safety and efficacy here? That is definitely um, uh, one of the proposals that I have seen. Now, we have patent term restoration in the law already. So the firms can pick, once they get their drug approved, they can go to the patent office and they can pick out one patent and, and get some of the time back. But they don't get all of the time back. And the thing that has always concerned me is that they only get half of the testing time back. So for every additional year that they spend doing their research, they only get half back. When Congress was looking at solutions back in the late 70s and early 80s, one of the things they thought about was maybe we should just start the patent term with drug approval. Um, and I have seen some people suggesting that now. I, and, and that's certainly one possibility. Another possibility is just fixing the, the rest restoration so that, at least for the active ingredient patent, which is the core patent, it's the most important one. It's the one that blocks generic drugs. So that that patent, any of it that gets chewed up by the pre-market process uh, is, is basically given back at the end. Um, but there might be other solutions as well. I know some people think, well, we shouldn't do patents. We should we should just provide more exclusivity. And there may be regulatory solutions as well. I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to assume that the solution is just on the incentive side. It, it it could also be steps to ameliorate the the really long programs that people face. Is there a, a sound policy reason for alleviating this issue? I mean, I don't want to, to overstate this, but um, Frank, you, you were alluding to, to some of this earlier. We're, we're looking at an industry with extremely high margins, extremely high profitability, an industry that, at least in the United States, is pretty much immune from any interference with the prices that they sell, other than sort of market uh, reductions caused by generic competition and so on. And also, also an industry that I don't think has probably gained an awful lot of uh, love and affection for the ways that they have found to exploit aspects of patent law, particularly patent law designed to generate more generics and so on. So is this really something that we should be worrying about here? Or is the counterbalance, as, as you talked with Frank just now, that we're really being deprived of some 
very important drug families? I think it's the latter. I, I mean, I, I I say that I should I should add that I I am not, not particularly overwhelmed by the arguments that the the drug companies um, make enormous profits, and so therefore we shouldn't be worried here because I think if if the law and the regulatory if the, if the patent law and the regulatory system are working together in a way that they are disadvantaged compared to other inventors uh, I think there's there's simply a, a problem with the system and and I'm not particularly moved by people who say well they get 12 to 14 years before there's a generic when you think about the fact that inventors in other fields typically have at least 17 years of, of actual enjoyable patent life so I I'm not moved by that. But I think from a policy perspective, the concern that I'm trying to to kind of focus people on is the fact that because of how our drug regulatory system is structured, the way it works, um, what this asymmetry does, what this what this problem does is it's going to steer companies away from certain types of drugs, certain types of research programs, because those programs are going to cost them more in terms of patent life than other programs. That's the concern. It's it's that we're not incentivizing treatments for Alzheimer's, for um, all the various types of other dementias as well, for Parkinson's, for for progressive diseases that take a really long time. Anything where the clinical trials for for something that's disease modifying rather than just relieving the symptoms, where those clinical trials are going to take a really long time. We structurally the system disincentivizes any rational company from doing those programs. So I wonder, is a is an alternative to IP reform or FDA regulation reform, is there another better way of recalibrating, particularly taking into account the differences between drug families, drug purposes, and so on? And sort of looking at some of the, the, you know, that innovation law beyond IP literature, where you could have more focus sort of grants or prizes or subsidies that could be paid to better sort of tweak the system we have. I think we need to explore all of the options. Um, prizes, subsidies, grants, all of these are, are possibilities. Uh, they're still payment, though. I mean, at the end of the day, the Research costs money, and you're just shifting those. Those solutions are, sim- sh- are excuse me, are simply shifting where who's paying for it. Maybe it's more broadly taxpayers rather than the consumers of the product. But but it's still they, they're still grappling with the fact that this research needs to be done and and, and paid for, and it's incredibly expensive. I, I I don't think I wouldn't want to rule out any of those uh, possibilities at at this point. I, I think we have a problem. The current system is not, it looks to me like it is not going to be providing enough incentive to do these types of research and, and anything we can do, I think we should be talking about. In terms of thinking about baselines, I really enjoyed the beginning of your article, The Myths of Data Exclusivity, which had a uh, Star Wars reference. So it's not only Cass Sunstein who's writing about, legal scholar writing about Star Wars, um, uh, our, our guest has as well. And um, one of the things you know 
Node was sort of a, a scene where um, uh, Darth Vader said something along the lines of, I am altering uh, your entitlements. Pray I don't alter them further. And uh, the idea behind this was that um, it seems as though if people can sometimes uh, set forth baselines and sort of um, assume a level of a baseline that uh, is unfair to start with and then say, just be glad I haven't made it even more unfair than it was. And I'm wondering if you could, you know, from that sort of a very fun and entertaining metaphor, sort of give a sense of why you believe that the current uh, discussion of data exclusivity uh, in U.S. regulatory landscape, how that's become skewed. And I guess maybe we should back up a bit. We've talked a little bit about data exclusivity in passing, but I guess if you could start by describing the overall place of data exclusivity in the regulatory regime and then why certain uh, myths of data exclusivity, to quote your the title of your Lewis and Clark Law Review article, um, why those have emerged. Sure. And actually, um, I think by describing what it is, I, I will be inherently sort of um, teeing up what the myth is. So uh, an innovator, uh, a, a brand company to get its product approved has to generate a large amount of safety and effectiveness data, preclinical trials, clinical trials. It generates a large volume of data, which it submits in its new drug application a or biologics license application. So it's true for biologics as well. A generic drug company submits what's called an abbreviated new drug application. They don't have to re-prove that the drug is safe and effective. They're proposing a copy and what they have to do instead is compare their product to the brand product. They have to show that it's the same and that it's bioequivalent. It's a comparative application and once they do that, once they make that showing, it's like a bridge. And once that bridge has been built, then they can rely, they're relying indirectly, FDA is relying on all of the data, all of the research that the brand company did. That research then applies. It's sort of a transitive thing. They build the bridge and then the brand company's data applies to their product and they can get on the market and their product is deemed safe and effective. And it's a similar process with biologics, although the bridge is a little bit bigger, what they have to do to, to bridge over to those data. But the notion for these is that the generic company's application relies on the data that the brand company submitted. And um, data exclusivity in, in the statute, the, the way it works is there is a period of time before generic drugs can be, that before the applications can be submitted, before they can be approved in the case of biosimilars. There's a period of time, a fixed number of years, and that's referred to as data exclusivity. And in, for drugs, it's, it's five years if it's a new chemical entity. But so if a brand company gets a new chemical entity approved, there's five years before a generic drug company can submit its application. It changes if the generic challenges the patent, but that's a, it's a fixed period of time. At the end of that, their application, which is abbreviated and which relies on the brand company's application, can be submitted and approved. And um, the, the sort of the conventional way of talking about exclusivity for, for years has been that the drug companies, the brand companies get five years, that this is uh, bestowed upon them a five-year period um, sort of, of, of exclusive use of their data, that it, that it was sort of bestowed on them when Congress enacted the generic scheme in 1984. And 
12 years were bestowed on the biologics brand companies when the biosimilar statute was enacted in 2010. The the concern I have or, or the myth that I identify in this article is that it was that it is something bes- that, that, that it is a a benefit that has been bestowed. The way I think it it, it really should be described instead is that for for a five-year period or for a 12-year period, anybody who wants to market a particular drug has to do a full application. So if I want to, if I'm a, a second company and I want to market the same thing, I'm going to have to do all the clinical trials. At the end of five years or at the end of 12 years, all of a sudden, it is possible for people to file a different type of application. So in other words, a new pathway has opened up, to, a new pathway to market. And I think that's, I think that is a more accurate way of describing what is going on. Um, I, I, the, the myth is partly that the brand companies got anything because what actually happens at the end of the five years is they lose something. At the end of five years, they no longer have the exclusive rights to their data. So it's partly that the whole notion of getting something is 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 mistake. But it's also, I think, simply a misunderstanding about the regulatory paradigm. What happens is one pathway to market for five years becomes two pathways to market when, at, at five years and later. You make a distinction, which I think it, I get the impression is core, between data exclusivity and market exclusivity. Can you can you flesh out that a little bit for us? Yes, I can. And, and that's actually a, a good question. I'm really glad you asked that. Uh, I think that the terms are used differently by a lot of different people. And I think there's a lot of confusion. I think the data exclusivity is the term that you want to use when you're referring to the period of time when a company has exclusive use of its data. And when the data exclusivity period ends, other people can rely on its data. There are other types of exclusivity Orphan drug exclusivity is one, and 180-day generic drug exclusivity is the other, and those have absolutely nothing to do with data. Orphan exclusivity is for a rare uh, a product that treats a rare disease, and if if I develop one of these products and my drug has orphan exclusivity, what that means is that for seven years, not only are generics relying on my data blocked from the market, but another innovator who wants to do all of the research, all of the preclinical and clinical trials, they can do those trials, but they're blocked as well. That seven-year period blocks abbreviated data reliance-based applications as well as full marketing applications. It is actually uh, an affirmative um, grant of uh, exclusivity in the marketplace from anybody, whether it's a generic or or a brand company. 180-day exclusivity is similar. Neither of them blocks, has anything to do with, with relying on data. I'm wondering in terms of the reconfiguring the baseline here or re-recharacterizing it, is one foundation of that that under the current configuration of say trade secrets and FOIA exemptions that the data submitted by the firms to the FDA is protected by trade secrecy usually and therefore that's is that sort of what's driving the normative intuition that the companies have lost something thanks to this uh, legislative intervention rather than uh, having uh, gained anything? That's fair. I think that FDA certainly has historically treated the data as as trade secret, at least as, as understood under... Uh, 
the Federal Trade Secrets Act, and they are uh, exempt as well under Exemption 4 of FOIA. So that that is driving a large part of it. I think that um, if you go back to some of the early data exclusivity discussions, there's a little bit of language consistent with misappropriation cases and so forth. So the intuition that the data are are property um, stems from a lot of the the trade secret literature, um, as well as some of the misappropriation cases. And that's, that's a part of it. I, I think the other the other part of it, though, the other reason why, to me, the notion that companies have been given something uh, trou- is troubling is that both with the generic statute and with the biosimilar statute, what happened historically was brand companies had perpetual exclusivity. They would submit their data and there was no pathway for somebody else to crack open their files or 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 rely on their files without cracking them open. There was nothing, there was no mechanism for that. So, and this is the reason for the Darth Vader quote. So, so when Congress swept in and said, well, okay, five years after you submit your application, now all of a sudden people can rely on all the work that you did and paid for and submitted to the agency. What happened was they went from infinite protection to five years of protection. And that to me is a taking away, not a giving. Just just is a historical matter. It's a taking away, not a giving. Yes. I, I think that's a very interesting sort of way of, of thinking about how certain forms of rights can eventually accrete into something that could be taken. And you know, I'm thinking also about the uh, when you mentioned giving, or think of Parchamovsky's article on government givings, and then when you we think about takings in the IP context. I think of cases like, uh, oh, Philip Morris versus Riley in Massachusetts. Then there was actually a very interesting case involving the potential taking uh, by the FDA of copyrighted material when it was uh, requiring certain follow-on generics to use the same uh, types of warnings that had been copyrighted by the brand firm. So I do think, yeah, it's a very rich area to think about in terms of um, takings, givings, and how we frame those sorts of uh, property rights and their potential constitutionalization. Um, in terms of you know thinking further about the um, uh, problems of intellectual property law and its fit to the health policy landscape, a third article that we wanted to discuss on the show was your piece on uncharted waters, which is as I understand it, essentially a critique of the effort to apply the logic of generic drugs, the 1984 generic drug statute um, in the 2010 biosimilar law. And I was wondering if you could explain, you know, why the biological medicines landscape is so different than the one, say, of uh, chemical entities of traditional pharma. Sure. And I think, I mean, when I wrote it, it was it was not so much a critique as a, as a warning, because the scheme was new, it still is new, and and basically what I was trying to say is, look, you think you know how innovation and competition work, and you have an elaborate sort of set of schema about competitive behavior and anti-competitive behavior that you've learned over 30 years working with generic drugs, and what I'm here to tell you is you have to put all of that aside, and you have to start over and construct new schema for biologics. And and it's not to say that that there won't be areas of concern. I'm, I'm, I'm quite 
quite certain that uh, people will find things to be concerned about. It's just that a lot of the basic assumptions about why, what kinds of things companies do and why they do them are, are not going to be true here. And, and the reason for it, and I, I sort of boiled it down to two features of the biologics framework that are very different from the generic framework. And, and one of them is that it's very variable. So uh, every biological product by a similar application is, is going to, to differ. Uh, the requirements are going to differ from uh, one product to another, from one brand product, one reference product to the next, and maybe from one by a similar product to the next. Um, it, so, so it's going to, some of them will be enormous applications, some of them will be smaller applications, so the cost is going to vary. Um, the, the, the way they get uh, market share is, is going to vary. It's certainly not the same as it is in the generic world. They don't, they're not going to achieve market penetration through automatic substitution. They're going to be marketing their products. Uh, but it may also vary quite a bit from, from one uh, biosimilar to the next. And uh, it, so variability is, is one of the, the key features of this scheme. The other feature of it is that it is brand new and it's going to change. And that's, that's different from the generic model because in 1984, when Congress enacted the generic framework, the agency had already figured out what needed to appear in generic applications. The agency already had an ANDA regulation. So there was, a, there was, there was an industry already existing and everyone knew what would go into those applications. This is something that's kind of being cobbled, is it the right word? Because I think FDA is being very sophisticated and thoughtful about it, but it's certainly being built as we go. And and so these these are some of the things that make this landscape um, really different from the generic drug landscape. And the the I mean the, the the differences go deep and and one of the tasks of this article is just sort of to explain all of the ways in which the the patent provisions are different and the commercializing the advertising and promotion rules have to be different and market penetration the considerations because these products are going to be physician administered how those are going to be different and all of this together means that a lot of the things that people have worried about with biologic, I mean, with, with drugs rather than biologics. I, I give one example in the conclusion, which is product topping. Um, a lot of these concerns, there may be a concern, but we have to under, we have to talk about them differently because the incentives are completely different and the scheme is completely different. Oh, yes. Yes. No, I think that does make a lot of sense in terms of trying to develop a really tailored regulatory response in these areas. And it is one of those areas where it's we get a lot of popular discussion of disappointment in the types of innovation that have occurred. And I think there's one story that you know is is related to our conversation uh, with Sarpatuari and Kesselheim uh, in terms of excessive protection for the wrong type of innovation. But there also is a story that I think should be explored with respect to under protection for particularly uh, important innovations, which could include the 
biological uh, sector. I think that's fair. I think one of the concerns I would have is um, making assumptions in the biologic sector that have simply been borrowed from the drug world and when applied here uh, are harmful to innovation. That would that would absolutely be um, one of my concerns. Uh, and, and that was part of the motivation for this article was really to help people understand. Uh, I don't have answers here. What I'm trying to do in this piece is basically just help people see that when they start to analyze these questions, a situation, for example, that they think is an anti-competitive settlement agreement between patent litigators or between a, a, a patent owner and a biosimilar company or a product hopping situation, when they when they sit down to analyze one of these things, my, my hope is that this article provides them with uh, a way of thinking about the framework in which that decision operates that will be more nuanced and more tailored and more accurate. So that they come to the right result. And I, I'm not prejudging what that result would be. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Leedson for being on. You can find her on Twitter at L-I-E-T-Z-A-N, at L-I-E-T-Z-A-N. So please send your, your follow-up questions to her and not to me. Thank you so much for joining us, Erica. Great to hear your voice. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you for having me. We post our show notes at tall.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank is... Either at Frank Pasquale or at Health PI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legal interest. Interesting but healthy week.